Hello, I'm Dr. Sam Hancock of the Emerald Planet and Emerald Planet TV. We come to you on a week-to-week -week basis from Washington, D.C. in the United States as we look around the globe in 144 different nations looking for those thousand best practices, the technology, services, and products that are making a difference as we move through the 21st century. And as we have a planet of 9 billion people by 2038 and possibly 12 to 13 billion by the end of this century, how are we going to be able to take care of all these people on planet Earth? And that's what Emerald Planet's all about. We come to you looking at the solutions, the best practices from around the globe as we create the Emerald Planet. Hello, welcome to the Emerald Planet. We're making a difference as we move through the 21st century. And seeing the long-term impacts of climate change. Yes, as we're sitting here looking at the world, how do we deal with stormwater and groundwater? It's becoming a real issue, and at the same time that we're at times having major floods, also we're having great droughts. And the gentleman sitting right beside me has actually been working on this issue for a number of years. This is Rod Simmons. He's the conservation ecologist and biologist with the Virginia Native Plant Society, Potomac Chapter. And Rod, welcome back to the Emerald Planet. Thank you, good to be back. Good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about the mission and vision of Virginia Native Plant Society and why is it called that? Uh, statewide organization, conservation organization, uh, started in 1982, founded in 1982. Uh, it covers the, the entire state, but it also has a number of chapters that uh, for different geographic regions of the state. Mm -hmm. And it's a, uh, a conservation advocacy and uh, education and um, volunteer organization to protect and uh, and um, and inform uh, folks of the uh, native uh, wild flora and their habitats in, in Virginia. Now, why is, it, why is it so important that we have a focus now in the 21st century on native plants? Because, you know, going back to the early days of the colonial powers, we're bringing things from all over the world, thought that was absolutely fantastic. Now we're realizing that maybe we need to go back to native species. Why is that? That's a good question. The, the uh, native species are, are the foundation of our ecosystems, wherever they, they are. And, and native plants are the, the dominant natural resource on, uh, on any, most lands um, globally, but certainly in, in the Mid-Atlantic and Virginia. And, uh, it supports basically all the uh, the uh, higher life. Looking at streams and wetlands, what are we? How would we define streams? How we define wetlands? Because we're hearing it more and more. Even major uh, news sources are talking about these two water bodies. Why are they so critically important? One for native species, and secondly, to handle stormwater and to mitigate drought. Uh, well, they're they're. Uh, vitally and important for water quality and for which is our drinking water but also um, supports life uh, there are many different kinds of of uh, streams as there are many different kinds of wetlands and they're all interrelated um, and part of the hydrologic cycle um, uh, on earth mm -hmm. now looking at uh, having these streams and the wetlands uh, these are part of best practices so how would we define the streams and the wetlands as best practices and why are we applying that because in the old days we we're trying to get rid of all these i mean we'd actually plow them under mm -hmm. put in tile you know anything to remove it now we're trying to put them all back why the change uh, well as you've said um, we approached all this from a very egocentric uh, human-centric uh, viewpoint advantage that that uh, the, the wetlands and, and the ground is there to, and, the, and the earth is there to serve us, but we're finding that uh, we've had ecological collapse, ecological collapse of many of our um, systems, the waterways, uh, one of the, the most prominent ones. We've lost uh, most of the wetlands uh, since um, European occupation of this, of this nation. Mm -hmm. And 
<coughs> and we've got and we've degraded many of them, and we're we're getting into a situation where where um, it's, they're just not sustainable. I see. Now, looking at uh, biodiversity and going back to this term sustainability, also we want to add resilience to that. Uh, a lot of these waterways were highly processed, is the term. You know, they were plowed, widened, bulldozed, covered. I mean, just numerous ways to either get rid of them or cover them over or something like mm -hmm. that. Now we're going back to those. So, but we're seeing that biodiversity is actually helping to bring these back naturally. Why is that, how, why and how is that possible? Well, that's a, that's a good uh, dichotomy there. What you described is a situation you find in, in areas that were heavily modified, like let's say the, the Midwest where you have, where we, we re remove the prairie and the, the grasslands we put in, um, we, we re, uh, uh, you know, put for the farms and such mm -hmm. where we altered the streams and, and the course. In the eastern United States, and, and specifically in the Mid-Atlantic, the, uh, the vegetation is the eastern deciduous forest. And mm -hmm. so what we see even in large areas like uh, metropolitan areas like the uh, D.C. area or Baltimore, Philadelphia, wherever, um, are huge tracts of, of original native forest that are still uh, intact to, to some good extent. Um, they weren't uh, necessarily farmed. And a lot of the streams that were, or, or, or removed, a lot of the streams that we're, we're discussing here the, in, in focus um, uh, are these ones that are the, the upper headwater streams that emerge as springs and, and seeps. And those are the ones that are relatively intact still, but they're also the ones that, that are being um, altered uh, again mm -hmm. in a different way. In other words, they're actually being altered back to a more normal state or what they were in their originally? Uh, they're naturally um, a remnant. They, they, these things come from a point long ago in the past. They weren't something else and then they became a, 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 a healthy stream and then now and they're being changed. They're, they're uh, still highly functioning uh, native ecosystems. However, um, they're very attractive now for a lot of uh, government agencies, jurisdictions to um, to completely alter them and change them into something that they never were mm -hmm. um, and, uh, in, in, in geologic time. Right, right. And so, and then we lose the native biodiversity with, with that wholesale fashion. Yeah. Uh, losing the uh, native biodiversity, we have this photograph here of the turtle. Tell us about the turtle, why it's, why it's so important, and what is, what is it representing to us that's a, in a modern day time? That's a great example of. Uh, of, of a native uh, uh, animal uh, uh, that depends on those small upper headwater streams for its survival. That's the, the uh, eastern box turtle and uh, its numbers are declining greatly throughout the eastern U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it stays the, f it, uh, the first 10 or so years of its life along those, those small headwater streams because there's, uh, there, it is an intact uh, habitat and, and, and system and there's... So it's a real ecosystem in itself. It is and it, and, and it's, it, it stays there for protection as well because it's, it really can't fend for itself as well in the open, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the forest mm -hmm. community, the general forest. I see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now looking at, uh, we have another turtle here, tell us the, the difference of that and also how this is aiding and uh, supporting biodiversity. Um, well, the best, a best practice for stream restoration projects, um, it's really, a, they're construction projects basically, is to avoid uh, ones that would remove things like the uh, turtle that we just saw, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the salamanders, and the snakes, and, the, and the, uh, all the, this, the, the other the life forms that, that can't uh, escape a bulldozer. Mm -hmm. And so, when, we, when we, one just scoops that out, it's just gone forever, and it doesn't come back because it's taken many, many uh, thousands of years and beyond for those, those uh, complex interactions and, and uh, uh, life associations to, uh, to occur. Mm -hmm. let's, let's stay on this turtle right here. Uh, you're talking about thousands of years to evolve into this balance that it has you know, the animals, uh, you know, with the, the, the various plants, 
but also, you know, we have the aerobic, anaerobic bacteria in the soil. Mm -hmm. All three of these interact with each other. They do. So how mm -hmm. does this turtle, as an example, help to mix, mingle, and to enhance that biodiversity as far as the plants, uh, the mm -hmm. creatures, you know, in the earth, and as the ones above Earth? That's a, a good, uh, another great example of, of the uh, interrelationship between uh, plants and animals. Um, we we and, and they co-evolved over, uh, over many, many millions of years mm -hmm. and uh, to where they, their, their life histories are, are conjoined. The, uh, the example of the turtle is one that, um, that helps plant the forest mm -hmm. in, in the eastern deciduous forest by uh, one of its preferred uh, foods is the may apple with the, the fig-like fruit that, that, that uh, is produced in late spring. Right. Um, soil microorganisms very extremely important. Without them you wouldn't have a forest. That's what supports the forest through drought, through, um, through all other uh, environmental stressors, atmospheric stressors. The, uh, the soil microorganisms that, that, um, that, that work with the roots of the trees and the plants to, uh, to sustain the forest and, and um, and when that is, when that is uh, um, altered or disturbed in a serious way, um, it, it, you don't get that back either. Yeah, and the whole thing about this, we don't realize the complexity of this. Looking at the plants that we have before us with the flowers, the trees, uh, the water in the background, uh, we know that there's literally billions, maybe even trillions microorganisms in the ground. So how is all this being brought back now in the 21st century from you know, 400 years of <laughs> over harvesting, human tampering, and fires, floods, and all that. How are we bringing that back? Uh, for the, I wish we were for the small order uh, streams and that are in forested parcels that are getting all the attention. You know, the recent Washington Post mm -hmm. article on the uh, on this. For the large order streams, um, we have a much better chance and much better success of doing that. The small order interior forested streams, the seepage streams, that the headwater streams, we can't. They're just uh, not uh, an equal uh, uh, trade for what, we're, what we can do um, if we remove the material. Um, it's just forever lost, unfortunately. Yeah, and it, it's really beautiful to see uh, the, the plants and animals in these photographs you have are absolutely <laughs> stunning. So in the time we have left, we just have uh, uh, about 30 seconds, Rod. <laughs> What do you see for the growth and development as far as the Virginia Navy Plant Society Potomac chapter? Um, well, to keep on going, uh, uh, invite uh, folks to join us, um, uh, certainly, and um, do a lot of field trips. You go out and see a lot of these places uh, close up, hands on, and um, by all means, come out and join us. We wanna uh, keep a robust program going. With Environmental education is, is so uh, desperately needed, as you well know, um, in this day and age, and, and that probably is our best hope. Okay, wonderful. Rod Simmons, a conservation ecologist, biologist, Virginia Navy Plant <laughs> Society, Potomac Chapter. Thank you for being with us as we create the Emerald Planet. Thank you. <laughs>
to uh, get the word out to, especially the youth, but to, uh, to everyone basically to know what they have and to uh, respect it and hopefully uh, advocate for its uh, preservation and, and um, proper use. That's fantastic. Well, you look at this uh, image here with the tremendous damage that can happen from floodwaters, uh, not man properly managing the, the runoff as far as the, the storm water mm -hmm. and our groundwater as they're calling in other areas of uh, the west and around the globe. What do we need to know about this as far as what's called uh, large streams, mm -hmm. smaller streams? Uh, what's the difference between those? And why is that order, as you call it, so important? That's a great question. It, it the order is, is uh, this is the, what we're seeing here is a large order stream. This is a Holmes Run high energy stream. Um, you can see with the, uh, the trunks of the trees, uprooted uh, trees and such that are washed down and they're, they're trapped along that, uh, the, that Fairweather Crossing Bridge. Um, large order streams are, are uh, high energy, but th those are the streams that are, were, they're appropriate for, for uh, stream restoration work. Um, where when, when needed. Um, it's the small order streams that are in interior forest, the upland streams, those are not appropriate areas for the most part for um, restoration projects, so-called restoration projects. When you look at the, uh, the amount of water we're looking at right here, I mean, this is uh, really out west, you know, entire uh, valleys <laughs> are, are being flooded, uh, cities, towns, and this is becoming more common mm -hmm. because, again, the intensities so going back to that uh, large order stream and to this, where are we trying to branch and to bridge as far as taking care of water when it's appropriate mm -hmm. uh, so that it actually is serving nature as well as humankind? Yes, um, well, we're seeing uh, the drowned estuary of Lower Four Mile Run in, uh, in Alexander and Arlington there in Orlandria. Um, and uh, that is a, a tidal estuary mm -hmm. and uh, the mouth of the of Four Mile Run there at the Potomac River. And it has, uh, uh, that's an example of what happens when you build in the, the, the bottomland floodplain mm -hmm. of, a, of a tidal estuary. There's no place for the water to go mm -hmm. um, and it uh, just back floods everything. So in that case, it's a good example of, of where restoration projects can actually be very appropriate and beneficial. In, in this case, we've actually uh, um, removed some of the uh, old levee there that was installed and we, we uh, opened up another tidal cove and uh, planted it with the appropriate vegetation, mm -hmm. tidal vegetation, and uh, it's d doing beautifully, it flourishes, mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, it helps also uh, sequester the water so we don't have so much of the flooding. Right, right, and uh, you know, and people damage. investing in all that. Uh, but looking at the uh, Potomac River, I mean, uh, this is a major river. Uh, <laughs> so how does these uh, large order and small order streams fit into an estuary as large as the Potomac River, which is uh, mm -hmm. you know, basically the, the uh, emptying out all of Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. and points you know, west and north mm -hmm. of here uh, into the Chesapeake Bay? Yeah, th this is an uh, example of another high-energy uh, uh, deposition bar, depth bar we call it, um, where you have, a, it's a scour zone, um, ice or, or flood water scoured, and you can see the same uh, debris is, is uh, trapped there for the moment. Um, and uh, um, again, it just shows the uh, tremendous uh, energy in the water current as it's as it's uh, rushing through here um, it all is coming downstream of course and to the bay um, and uh, that's actually the, the, the photo is a uh, image is, is a, a natural shoreline mm -hmm. and um, and uh, again uh, there, you wouldn't do a, a project along that area um, uh, such an area would you but just allow that to stay uh, stay natural and uh, looking at uh, the trees, these, uh, they're almost like meadows. It looks like mm -hmm. a, a, yeah, a park. Good, good point. And, uh, but again, this is a way to sequester this water. But also, these are large carbon sumps they as are. well. Absolutely. And this is something we don't really think about is how water and carbon and, you know, the, the pollutants and the atmosphere are all being captured at the same time. 
absolutely. This is a, uh, an ancient, what we call an ancient alluvial levee along a high energy stream. And uh, it's very flat, you can see, and, and, and it does have that sort of a glade, meadowy look where you just, very, very flat community, but it's been water uh, sculpted. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but it's very old, it's along Holmes Run as well. And that's an example of, of a habitat or community that we actually preserved by carefully uh, uh, performing a stream project in Holmes Run right there. So we, if, if we had done it in the wrong way, we would have destroyed that community. Mm -hmm. Now looking at this, looking at this stream, again, this is, you know, uh, upper areas, but there's a tremendous amount of velocity. Mm -hmm. You can see how these rocks actually have been mm -hmm. sculpted, you know, over millions mm -hmm. of years. And so what are we seeing here is how we can dissipate uh, the energy and or maybe concentrate the energy if we need it and then let it dissipate mm -hmm. on its own. How, how do we do, how do we design this? Well, uh, as you said, the, the, uh, the bedrock that's exposed here um, is, has been hastened to be exposed by the, the uh, you can see the, the outflow pipe mm -hmm. that's draining a, a upper interior forest small order stream. Mm -hmm. And this, this image here is just opposite the one we just saw with the alluvial levee. Um, and th this is an important, uh, for the city of Alexandria, right at the Fairfax County line, this is an important geologic um, feature mm -hmm. that we wanted to preserve because there's many different kinds of, of bedrock that come in here. It's, uh, it's very old. Mm -hmm. And um, we tied in the project, the, the stream project there, um, uh, to preserve these features, I not, to, not to, to build over them or to chop them up or to damage them. So, Really so this is really example. in its natural state. Then. It's completely in its natural state, except for the the uh, exposed the outflow right. uh, up there. But um, it it it's, can tolerate that well. Okay, then how does this water continue to flow? What were you seeing here? We're, we're just seeing, going to kind of walk through sure. these and just <laughs> talk about the the form, uh, but not just the the technology and the techniques of it, but also the artistry of this, because mm -hmm. these are really beautiful areas. Well, thank you. Yeah, that, that's a, this is there is artistry in, in this. This was um, my preferred example of a very successful, very considerate, uh, thoughtful project for a large order stream and how large order streams are effective uh, and appropriate for such a process, uh, re restoration uh, efforts. There's also a, a sanitary sewer line that goes underneath the stream, or, uh, or not far. Uh, right in the same area. So there were a lot of issues that were that, that uh, were involved and um, they were all dealt with well. The artistry um, that you referred to is is uh, in uh, is, is exemplified by the the little rock wall there, but it's not very high. And that's a, really a sand and sediment trap. It, it traps uh, um, not pollutants or nutrients, but it's really for for sands and gravels. And and it's basically designed to sort of um, move the uh, sediments out of the channel into the to the to the stream bank area and sort of naturally build that up to a, a sort of a bar and um, without altering anything in there or with and without having to put in a big a block wall of some sort and the whole thing about this then really is getting back to this whole thing as far as what's native natural mm -hmm. you know to these areas and how people would have seen it maybe hundreds or thousands of years ago. absolutely yeah that was a minimalist uh, approach. Right, and looking at this, okay, we're getting back to this uh, kind of the, the dale and the meadow and, uh, <laughs> and all this. But how does, how does this work in with the water itself? Uh, what we're seeing here is actually uh, back to Lower Formal Run, and this is the old uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers levy that they put in in the late 70s and early 80s to, to, to try as flood abatement to try to keep the waters from damaging properties nearby. Um, the soil that they brought in to raise the, the natural grade up many feet um, was contaminated with all sorts of weeds. I don't know where they got it, but it, mm -hmm. um, and uh, probably was inevitable we'd have the weeds there anyway, but nevertheless, it, um, it, it's an ecological dead zone of sorts. There really wasn't a functioning community there because it wasn't, it wasn't at all natural. Mm -hmm. You can't just put various plants together and expect a, a ecosystem or a, or a natural habitat to occur. And that is really one of the big problems with 
stream restoration projects in interior forest because it's a forest community, not uh, a meadowy type forest and a community, and you're not going to get that mm -hmm. um, just by planting it. Right. Now, looking at uh, the, you know the riverbanks that we have here, is this the way we should be doing it, or is this another example of how not to do? Things? Well, this is a this is what we had to do to remove the 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 levee and the weeds, uh, they're the invasive species that that were that, that colonized the site. So this is actually digging down into um, long ago, getting rid of that soil, moving it off site, and uh, and creating a uh, freshwater tidal cove here. And that's Which, what we're looking at here. We're going to go out on this. Looking at this uh, freshwater tidal uh, cove, what do you see for the, the, the go growth and expansion of these kinds of uh, natural bodies for the future as far as dealing with stormwater, groundwater, high-intensity mm -hmm. storms? And we got just a few seconds to do I'd that. I'd love to see this. This is where we should be focusing our efforts and our, and our funding on, on, on uh, successful projects like this. The biodiversity in this in this uh, frame here, this image is, is tremendous, uh, from from uh, uh, flora floristically to uh, the, the 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 faunal components, mm -hmm. um, water quality is is greatly improved, um, and the reason it works is because we removed an artificial uh, condition and we replaced it with the natural. This is Ron Simmons, Virginia Native Plant Society. Thank you for being with us as we create the Emerald Planet. Thank you. Looking at the issue of water and natural zones within urban areas, we're having more and more discussions and more and more design projects. At the same time, we're trying to figure out what should be this actual balance between nature urban settings and the humans and actually animals and plants that have to live in these very restricted, constricted areas. And I have a gentleman sitting right beside me that's doing a lot of this work. This is Kurt Mosier. He's an ecologist and director for Four Mile Run Foundation. And Kurt, welcome back to the Emerald Planet. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the mission and vision of Four Mile Run Foundation. Yeah, so we're a, a nonprofit organization, uh, all volunteers, um, and we do a lot of restoration work, a little bit of advocacy work for better park amenities um, and better uh, policies around uh, natural lands. Um, we do some recreation. We get mm -hmm. people outside um, and try to, to introduce them to nature in our We're going to see setting. some of that, too. Um, and, uh, and education, working right. with, uh, with kids and trying to get uh, stewardship in early in people's mm -hmm. lives. I'm going to put this up. Now, this, this is really a juxtaposition where you have this very uh, urban area and natural forest all together. So tell us why this is becoming the norm as far as reforestation and possibly 80% of America, because about 80% of the Americans live in urban areas now. Well, that's just it. That's, that's where we live. Um, and that's one of the reasons why restoration here is important. It's because that's where people see it, that's where people feel it, and that's where people most easily can get the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. Now when they see this, I'm going to leave this up because you've got you know, all this going on in the sky, and this is a beautiful photograph, but how are we uh, sensitizing people that, you know, yeah, you're living in an urban area, but we have to have this nature along with us really to make us almost human beings. How do we do that? Well, I think part of it is actually getting them to realize it's there. Um, for a long time, I think Lower Four Mile Run in particular um, was felt to be uh, more of a drainage ditch for the city um, and kind of treated that way. And, and the more people see it th that way, uh, the less they see it as a place that's natural or a place that's interesting or a place that engages their, their minds or their, their bodies in active recreation. But we're looking at this photograph here. Now, we've only just, you know, kind of almost gone around the bend, if we can use that metaphor. Uh, but we look like we're just out in the middle of the wilderness somewhere, but we're still in the same urban area that we just saw. That's one of the remarkable things about Four Mile Run is that it really is a very, um, a very natural space uh, that's right tucked in the middle of the city. Uh, and um, that people are starting to realize that and that the, the trail is uh, improving to the extent that people can actually access those areas 
and enjoy them more and, um, and be involved in making sure that that restoration proceeds and progresses. Mm -hmm. um, now looking at this scene right here, what is this helping as far as the uh, nature is concerned, but also as human beings as they're again in these very intense urban areas as becoming more and more concrete, steel, brick, and yet you're trying to introduce more and more what we're seeing right here is these very placid waterways, much greenery surrounding the whole area. And, and again, using this whole thing about, you know, water and plants as a carbon sump to help to clean the environment itself. Yeah, so they do have an important ecological function uh, in terms of things like carbon storage um, or pollutant removal. Mm -hmm. um, and they, but they also serve as a, an area of natural beauty, a place where people can relax, uh, a place where people can um, get away from the city, even though they're still right in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you that uh, going into the little tributaries off of Four Mile Run and, and going into some of the natural areas that are back in the streams there, other than hearing the ambient noise coming from the city, you would not know that you were in the city. And it's because we do have a decent acreage of natural lands or lands that are being managed as natural lands. And we're seeing that right here. You know, we have, you know, this power line in the back, but yet you have someone out there paddling, you know, very, you know, contently, you know, on the water, surrounded by green. So how are people adapting to this, knowing, you know, mentally and psychologically they're really in the city, but yet they can go out and just totally relax and enjoy nature as it should be enjoyed? Well, part of it, I think, is realizing what the city should be. Mm -hmm. The city should be a place that has nature. The city should be a place where you can see a belted kingfisher mm -hmm. diving down and taking a fish out of the water. It should be a place where um, when we walk around, we see interesting birds or butterflies or plants, flowers. Um, and I think that that's maybe runs contrary to um, the way we sort of um, stereotype the idea of a city, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think it is uh, absolutely a better way of living in a city. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now looking at this, this, this really goes back to just what we were talking there uh, a little earlier on as far as, you know, we have the, uh, again, this built environment and now we're turning it into a nature space. So looking at the taxpayers, the ones that are actually paying for all this, and what are, what's the feedback you're getting now that you're turning more and more of this built environment into more, in a sense, a natural preserve? And they're feeling, uh, you know, this maybe is a little balance for everyone or, you know, let's go back to concrete. I mean, how do people really feel about this? And what's the feedback you're getting? Well, I think it's, it's obviously people find it very important that Four Mile Run not flood again. Um, and so there are limitations on how natural a space it can be because it is within a flood control channel. Um, and it's got protective levees to keep the neighborhoods from flooding. Mm -hmm. And ever since that's been built, it has never flooded um, the lower part. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time today, people go running there and cycling there. Um, they go birding there. They you know, it's, it's something where people are starting to realize there's a lot of um, recreational opportunity there. Um, we do kayak cleanups uh, mm -hmm. at Four Mile Run Park. It's really fun to be out in a kayak, even mm -hmm. if what you're doing is picking up trash. It's just a blast to be but, outside. And, and the thing about this is you have a sense of community because people are out there and there's, you know, numerous kayaks and canoes out there and it really is a community. They're sharing coffee and, uh, pastries and I mean it, it's almost like a party on on water and yet they're doing something very meaningful in other words cleaning up the tributary itself yes um, we actually uh, just recently had a happy hour event and had a whole bunch of people came and just uh -huh. wanted to talk about what they were seeing at four mile run um, trade recently trade stories of um, spotting a beaver swimming up and down four mile run uh, as a number of people have seen in the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. um, and it's really it is it is building community and that's for us we sort of think of our our charge as nature culture community we want to get people to understand some of the local history mm -hmm. and some of the reason behind why four mile run is the way it is today and why that flood control channel exists and why it's important 
um, and what it was like before it, because it really is fascinating. You showed a picture earlier right. mm -hmm. that showed the flooding in Arlandria, which was terrible in the 60s and 70s. Right, yeah. And we're, hopefully we're, uh, we're beyond that, but now the intensity of these storms, we have, may have to rethink you know, how we actually manage that, particularly in a very natural way. That's correct. Our, our, um, the July storm we had last mm -hmm. year, the, the one that dropped three inches of rain in a pretty short amount of time, mm -hmm. um, the water was very, very high, very, very fast. Um, and it, it did not overtop the levee, but it definitely showed that um, a lot of water can come through there in a heavy storm. And, and given that we do expect to see more of these mm -hmm. heavier storms, mm -hmm. you know, it, it opens up the possibility of flooding. Now looking at this uh, design work that we have here, you know, the picture of pictures, uh, what are we seeing here, and how do you, as you know, the director and ecologist, try to balance all of this and to share this information with the public about, you know, here's where we are, here's where we want to go, and these are the benefits from that? Yeah, well, the picture is one of the signs from the Arlington County side of the run, um, and the county um, worked with um, uh, a photographer. In fact, I think most of those are, are photographs by a, a a four mile run volunteer, David Howell, who mm -hmm. took a lot of the pictures that, that I um, have for of wildlife. Right. Um, and we share a lot of those on our website. Um, we, uh, having the interpretive features so people can see um, and, and know what they're looking at and know that mm -hmm. it's, uh, know the difference that, mm -hmm. that, you know, if they're seeing a native plant or if they're seeing something that's an invasive plant that also flowers. Mm -hmm. um, getting people to sort of recognize the nature that's around them. Um, you know, I think that, that having signs in the park, um, and we, we helped develop some of the signage on the Alexandria side, um, having the signage in the park where people can understand what they're looking at mm -hmm. um, and maybe stoke their curiosity a little mm -hmm. bit, mm -hmm. it's, it's really important. So you think this really is a way that you're really engaging and reaching to the people and having them then start providing feedback you know, to what you're doing and, and how you're doing it, but also it gives them a bridge of understanding that if you didn't have the signage out there and the discussion about what they're seeing, they just would, it's a beautiful site, but they really wouldn't understand it or wouldn't know it. Right, well, and it gives them a sense of context. It gives them a sense of their relationship to the nature that we have close to us um, and, and gives them more of an appreciation of what's around them. Um, when you start to know the names of trees or the names of flowers or the names of animals, you start to have more of a relationship than if you just see tree, 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 mm -hmm, tree. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's why we, we like doing that. That's why we lead nature walks and introduce people to the nature. Well, you, you've brought up volunteers a number of times just in the short uh, discussion that we're having right now. We're seeing some of these. Why are these volunteers so important? four mile run foundation and so important to the city itself well so uh well for two reasons one um, just uh, in the last year we've had more than 2,000 hours of volunteer service mm -hmm. um, and more than i think i think we've had about 330 volunteers mm -hmm. um, spending their time helping to remove invasive plants pick up litter around four mile run um, and and do other conservation work to try to make sure that it's really in the best possible shape. And I think what our goal is really to encourage that sense of stewardship. Um, mm -hmm. it, I sort of sometimes think of it as ownership, like, you know, right. I feel like it's, it's our park, mm -hmm. but it's really stewardship more than it is ownership. It's really feeling like it's a this collective. is a place I need to take care it's of. This is a place that I'm part of a community that takes care of. We're gonna go out on this photograph because we were talking about this a little bit earlier as far as the, the kayaks and the canoes and all that building sense of community. How do you see what we're looking at right here expanding and growing over the next five or 10 or 15 years and the impact? And we got about 20 seconds to do all that. Well, I can tell you our kayak cleanups have been pretty much oversubscribed the whole time. We had 18 of them last, last year. Um, and we had, I don't remember how many volunteers, but over a hundred volunteers um, coming out just in kayaks to pick up litter. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a way that they can work together, uh, meet people, have some fun, um, learn a little bit and do some good. That's fantastic. Kirk Mosier, he's ecologist, director for Mile Run Foundation. And thank you for being with us as we're looking at handling stormwater in a way that's more natural 
and actually will be sustainable in the future as we create the Emerald Planet. Looking at restoration of nature, being in a built environment, trying to manage the quality, actually not just manage it, but increase the quality of the land, the air, and the water is something that really is as much art as it is science. And it's very important that we do this because roughly 80% of the American population live in urban areas, and the world itself more and more is becoming urbanized. And we have a gentleman who's sharing his best practices. This is Kirk Mosier. He's an ecologist, also the director of Four Mile Run Foundation right outside of Washington, D.C. And Kirk, you know, it's just amazing how you're doing all of this, trying to bring this balance between nature and all living beings, in other words, the plants, the humans, the bionome, the microorganisms, and yet allow it to be just completely natural where people just can come in and, and kind of, you settle with it, but it just kind of washes over you in a, in a very, you know, nice, subtle way. How do you do that? And then how do you communicate that to the community that you're helping to create this and we're gonna keep doing this? Because again, we need this balance between the built environment and nature. Yeah, well, for one, we have them work with us. We have them volunteer with us. Um, we give them opportunities to do the, the activities that help that restoration along. And I, I would say that it is a unique urban ecosystem. That is, it is not natural in the way that um, some distant headwater stream, uh, maybe up in the, in the mountains might be. Um, and it requires of us that we be involved. It requires that we take part in trying to make some space for nature mm -hmm. and uh, and you see the difference that it makes. Um, I've lived in the area for more than 20 years, um, and I would say that it is quite noticeable in my neighborhood, which is close to Four Mile Run, it's quite noticeable how much more wildlife we see there today than 10 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago. Look at this little critter, and I'm gonna ask this question about this, uh, how the, the public becomes involved with the environmental impact and really protecting you know, what many people now says is their, you know, their stream, their park, you know, everybody's now claiming uh, ownership on this. You know, 15, 20 years ago, they wanted to give it to somebody else. Now everybody <laughs> wants to have it because really the leadership, you know, people just like you that are, are, are doing this delicate balance. But this uh, little critter that we're seeing here, more and more of these are now actually coming back. And is that a success story? And if yes, how is that a success story? Well, that one's a really special case. Um, this was a photograph that was taken uh, when we were having a litter cleanup uh, with students from George Mason University. And one of them had a camera with him, Ben Rhodes, and, and Ben took a picture of that frog. And we looked at it and we realized that was either a gray tree frog or it was a Cope's gray tree frog. Um, and the next night we went out and listened um, because the only way you can really tell the difference mm -hmm. uh, without a, a DNA analysis kit uh, is by listening to the calls. It turned right. out it was a Cope's gray tree frog, and um, the Cope's gray tree frog had not been documented at Four Mile Run uh, for a century. A century? A century. Uh, My in, goodness. The, in the 1920s, mm -hmm. uh, it had been noted there, and it had not been noted there since. Now, I'm not saying that it hasn't been there ever since, but... Um, the fact that we know it's there, um, the fact that uh, we're able to document that it's there, it means a lot to be able to say, oh yeah, you know, this is the first time we've observed this um, that anybody noticed in 100 years. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty fantastic. Now looking at it, so this goes to the, my question on the benefits of restoration. Having this uh, example, and we're gonna have some others of this. Uh, how, is, how are these, uh, the, the animals, the critters, as we can call them, I guess, affectionately. How is that an example of where we're going as far as restoration of nature in the United States and possibly even around the globe to bring back, you know, many of these species that we thought were lost? Well, I think it's, it's that we're, we're realizing that we can make room for these things. Uh, even in cities, we can make room. Um, we probably can't have uh, herds of bison running through 
four mile run, but there's plenty that we can have. Um, and the fact that we are starting to be better about practices that allow that to happen. I think a lot of this is due to the fact that people are planting native plants in their backyards, um, you know, planting butterfly gardens. And when you do that, you have the basis of a larger food web. Um, you know, if you've got butterflies, you'll have something that eats butterflies. And if you have something that eats butterflies, you'll have the other thing that eats the things that eat butterflies. Right. Um, you'll, you'll always have more to see, more to appreciate, more to enjoy mm -hmm. uh, when you can make some room for it. Mm -hmm. And I think this is true everywhere where people live. You can make some room, maybe not for everything. Mm -hmm. uh, we probably don't want mountain lions. We probably won't see mountain lions, but we are seeing coyotes starting mm -hmm. to turn up in the area. Yeah. Um, and foxes on a very regular basis. Lots I'm of seeing, foxes, I'm yes. seeing foxes, raccoons, opossums in the area yep. where I am. And five, 10 years ago, would never see one. But they're yep. there now, and uh, and they're and they're quite healthy. That's the thing. It's it's you know really nice that they actually are living and they're living well in that area. But looking at you know the birds of prey coming back into areas, this really is a hairbringer of other good things to come as far as nature and the balance in the environment. What is this telling us when you have these higher order animals and, and birds coming back into communities? Well, first it tells us that it works. Um, you know, the, the example of the osprey, which the picture was showing a moment ago, um, they come up to fish in Four Mile Run. That's where they, they look for their food and they're very reliable. Um, come April when they are back from migration, mm -hmm. we'll see them again and we'll see them taking fish out of Four Mile Run. They don't nest at Four Mile Run, they nest on the Potomac River and then they come to Four Mile Run to fish. Um, 50, 60 years ago, there were no fish in Four Mile Run. Mm. Four Mile Run was, was well documented as a dead stream. And one of the Just things- Just like the Anacostia River. Well, like the Anacostia was some time ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Anacostia also is in a, a path of recovery. Mm -hmm. And part of what made that possible was we adopted better and more stringent requirements for wastewater treatment. Mm -hmm. So the Arlington Wastewater Treatment Plant, the Alexandria plant on uh, Cameron Run, uh, they, they do a much better job of cleaning the water before returning it to the stream in a way that was not happening in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. And when you look at video footage of Four Mile Run in 1949, there's not a living thing in the water, mm. nothing. And nothing could live in the water. That's amazing. And, and then you wouldn't have the birds of prey. Yeah. Now looking at this estuary we're looking at right now, how is this different from what it was, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago? Well, 20, 30, 40, it's a lot cleaner. The water quality is better. Mm -hmm. um, there is, uh, you know, there, in the last several years, both the city of Alexandria and Arlington County have done restoration work on both sides of the run. Mm -hmm. um, to allow there to be more habitat and, and more um, ecological function. Um, and so that looks a lot different. It also looks different from what it looked like 100, 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. A couple hundred years ago, that lower part of Four Mile Run was mostly a wide open embayment. It was deep water. You could paddle a boat through there any time of, any time of day, mm -hmm. high tide, low tide. Um, and today, it's much more constricted and the part that used to be a wide embayment um, has been filled in and built on top of. And that, you know, that happened through the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and onward. How does the uh, Four Mile Run Conservatory Foundation aid in what we're just talking about right here, about this restoration of, of the two cities and the Four Mile Run? How does that really help? Well, we try not to get in the way. Um, and we also try to make sure that we're helping to maintain those areas, helping to make sure that invasive plants aren't taking over. Um, and then in where there are opportunities, doing things like tree planting, um, getting volunteers out to plant more native trees and trees that are good habitat mm -hmm. um, and, and ones that are fitting for lower four mile run. Removing uh, invasive species, but also taking out all the, the flood you know, debris why is that so important and how do volunteers aid and assist in doing that? Well, I mean, one of the reasons it's important is that some of the, some of the litter, the trash that turns up in Four Mile Run and it comes off of the streets and through the storm drain system, mm -hmm. um, a lot of that is plastic, a lot of that is single use plastic and a lot of it breaks down um, and ends up breaking into small particles 
and it goes out into the Potomac River and out into the Chesapeake Bay, and it becomes a problem for animals. It becomes a problem for um, things that, that eat it instead of food, mm -hmm. um, and it is definitely recognized as a, a problem of a rather large scale. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is really a global world. issue. It is a global issue. Um, one of the things about Four Mile Run that's really helpful is that because it's right at the, the lower part is at the tidal extent, mm -hmm. a lot of the trash kind of hangs out there for a little while before it heads out to the Potomac. So if we catch it there, we're preventing a lot of it from ending up in the water. But one of the most important things we can do is encourage people not to use the single-use plastics, not to use you know, not to have that uh, kind of wasteful mentality. Mm -hmm. And so we've done um, projects, worked with the city of Alexandria to get projects to happen to install water um, bottle and jug filling stations uh, in the athletic fields in the city and at Four Mile Run Park uh, to make it so that it's, it's easy for people to make mm -hmm. good choices. Mm -hmm. It's easy for people to bring a reusable bottle because they know there's a place mm -hmm. to fill it. That's like DC water and maybe this is uh, where this uh, origin of this, but do the tap. I love yep. that. Now it's on all their trucks. Do the tap. Yep. You know, forget plastic bottles. I think that's on there as well. Uh, kick the habit. Kick the habit. Kibbit. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, the I habit think we, is. We, we've, we've talked about that a little bit, but the, let's talk about the. Yeah, we, we, our the campaign motto. was called Kick the Habit. And we were just trying to get people to, to get out of the notion that, you know, a, a single use water bottle is the normal thing that you do. Mm -hmm. They have their place. There, there, is, there are times when they're appropriate. And then there are lots of times when we get so used to them that we think that they're appropriate when really there are alternatives or there should be alternatives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, at all of our volunteer events, we provide water for people to refill bottles. We don't use single-use plastic mm -hmm. and we, we try very hard to, to avoid that. And I think if a lot of people did that um, and the more people do it, the better off we all are. Kick the habit plus volunteerism, cleaning up, cleaning up the, the riverbeds, uh, river uh, sides, why is that so important as we're moving forward through the 21st century going towards 2050? Well, we need people to know what a, what a, a proper city should look like. Mm -hmm. And we need people who can commit to doing what it takes to make our cities thrive, to make them beautiful, and to have them be more biodiverse. Looking at this, I'm going to go out on this, this photograph right here. Why is this an example of where we're going in the future as far as Far Mile Run, but all the nature areas in a built environment? Well, I, I certainly hope it is the way that we're going all over the country and all over the world. Um, you know, I think having people who are engaged in um, taking care of the environment and being good stewards of our environment, um, it's what's necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's absolutely necessary in, in our world. And it takes good leadership like you, Kirk Mosher. Thank, Thank you for you. being with us. Ecologist, director, Four Mile Run Foundation. I'm leaving this up here as far as all this trash removed. Very important as we look around the globe to create the Emerald Planet.